Welcome to the Sawyer Highlands and Converge Community Church Sermon Podcast. This is Season 2 with a brand new series on the book of Daniel. Each week we will upload the sermon that was preached during the Sunday morning service at our New Buffalo campus in hopes that it will serve you well during the week. So sit back, relax, and may you be encouraged by the great hope you have in Jesus Christ as you listen to the preaching of God's Word. Thank you, Jeff. I had heard about Jeff and Cindy through others and wanted to meet them. And when I first met them in the first week of January in a prayer meeting, our hearts were knit together and just praying together. And I was so excited to get the invitation to come speak to you. I'm actually not hard to get to come to a church. Uh, It was no big feat at all. It was a delight to come here because I know how much they love you. And I know how much you love them. And I want to thank you for the dedication you have as a church to the global mission of the gospel in giving your lead pastor the opportunity to work with us at Word Partners. We're a ministry that's all about elevating God's life-giving word in the hearts, lives, and ministries of pastors and their people. And that's what Jeff is doing when he goes to this place in Central Asia. He's lifting up the word of God, and he's coming alongside pastors, and he's impacting their hearts so that they can then train and equip and encourage others. We're all about seeing God's glory cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He promises that in Habakkuk 2.14, that the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's what motivates us as a ministry. We long to see the word of God flowing powerfully through every church to every nation. And that's what we trust God is going to do here today. So thank you, uh, Converge Church, for your dedication to the work of the gospel. And it's a joy to be with you today. I want to preach from John chapter 12, uh, verses 20 through 36, at the beginning of your missions emphasis month. And let's continue in worship. It's just been great to hear you singing, praising the Lord. Now we continue in worship as we bow before God's word and hear his word read and preached, beginning at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew told Philip and went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, 
an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Amen. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Please free us from distractions now and rivet our attention on your son, Jesus. Let us see him in his glory in fresh ways today and be transformed by his love and his work on the cross and send us forth in mission for his name, we pray. Amen. Most of us have great expectations for our lives, what we're going to accomplish. See some young people here as you think about your future. You're thinking about your dreams, your ambitions. Jesus, on the other hand, had great expectations concerning his death. Now, some of us hope that our lives are going to have a legacy that goes a little bit beyond our deaths, but most of us don't think that two or three generations from ours will be remembered much. Jesus is different. Jesus expects his life will have the greatest impact only after he has died on the cross. In fact, Jesus expects his death to be the most significant accomplishment of his life. And I want to speak to you this morning about the great expectations Christ had concerning his cross. Jesus saw his death on the cross, not as a tragedy, but as a triumph. He wasn't a victim. He was a victor. He had great expectations about what his death on the cross would accomplish. And as we examine his expectations, we will see that Jesus did not miscalculate. Don't think of Jesus like a politician who's 40 points behind in the polls on the night before the election saying, we're going to win this thing big. Jesus wasn't like that. He was not delusional. He anticipates victory. And today he stands in victory. And he wants us to have great confidence in what he has accomplished on the cross. We will see in this passage that Jesus expected his death to be productive, instructive, effective, destructive, and attractive. Five great expectations Jesus had about his death. Number one, Jesus expected his death to be productive. Look at what he says in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is telling us here, my death is going to bear much fruit. It's going to be productive. And the context of this passage is that Lazarus has been raised from the dead by Jesus in John chapter 11. 
And because of Lazarus miraculous resurrection, many people have become begun following Jesus. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the crowd went to meet him because they heard he had done this miracle. As the crowd starts following Jesus, the Pharisees are getting nervous because of how many people are turning to Jesus. And they say to one another in verse 19, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. In verse 20, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem for his crucifixion. And this is the week of Passover. This is the last week of Jesus' life that's going to culminate in his death and then in his resurrection. And as those are worshiping at the Passover feast, there are some people there from Greece, some Greeks. And they come to Philip in verse 21 and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And when Jesus hears this from Philip and Andrew, that the people from other nations are now coming to see him, Jesus sees that the decisive moment has arrived. He is the savior of the world. He has come to be the savior of all the nations. The nations belong to him. And in the gospel of John, John continually emphasizes the worldwide scope of Jesus' salvation. He came not to be the savior or Lord of one tribe of people, but of all the nations of the world. And he realizes when these Greeks come to him, the decisive moment is here. It's time now for me to accomplish my work that's going to enable me to be the savior of the nations. And he understands that in order for that to happen, he's going to have to die. Before you can experience Jesus' as your savior, you have to come to terms with what Jesus has done on that cross for you. Before he can save the nations, he's got to die for the people on the cross. And so he says in verse 23, the hour has come for the son of man. And here's a surprising word to be glorified, to be glorified. Jesus sees himself as the son of man from Daniel chapter seven. That's not surprising. Daniel 7 talks about the Son of Man being given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So it's not surprising that Jesus is the Son of Man. What is shocking is how Jesus expects to be glorified. It's through his death on a cross that Jesus sees He's going to be glorified to the highest place. Without a cross, no Greeks, no Americans, no Asians, nor, nor can anyone from anywhere in the world be able to see Jesus in his glory. He understands that in order for his life to be fruitful, he must die. And he illustrates how his death is going to be productive by using the metaphor of a seed. Think of a little seed. It has life in it. It contains fruitfulness in it. But if that seed remains alone, if it's just a seed that you take out of a package and put on your table, it cannot bear fruit. In order to bear fruit, that seed's got to fall into the ground and die. And we're seeing it in springtime as a bunch of buds are emerging on the trees and flowers are blooming. There's an outer shell of that seed that's got to be broken. There must be a death in order for the life that's within it to, to be let loose, to germinate, to multiply. 
Until that outer life has perished, the inner life that's within cannot flow forth and bring a harvest. Jesus is the seed. In him, there is life. In him, the fullness of God dwells bodily. But in order for Jesus' life to become ours, in order for the life that is in Christ to flow forth to a lost and dying world, he has to die. It's not enough for him just to be born or to live the perfect life that he lived. He, he has done all of that, and we're grateful for it. But in order for him to save us, he has to die that we might live. He has to fall into the ground. And if he had remained alone, a single solitary seed, heaven wouldn't be populated. The only person in heaven would be Jesus. None of us could join him there. There would have been no harvest. But we see here that Jesus has great expectations concerning his death, that there's going to be a worldwide harvest. There's going to be fruit, and he's not disappointed. You, Converge Community Church, are part of the harvest that Jesus has won through his death on the cross. The people to whom Jeff is going to go in Central Asia today, they're part of the harvest that Jesus has won through his death on the cross. Millions and millions and millions of people from every tribe and language and nation are his inheritance because of his death on the cross. Jesus knew that. He expected it to be productive. But the second thing Jesus expected was that his death would be instructive, that it would serve as an example to us. It's important that we realize Jesus' death is not only an example, but it is certainly an example for his followers. We see it in verses 25 and 26. He's not just speaking about himself in this passage, but he's speaking about everyone who wants to follow him. He's giving an example of what being a disciple of Jesus requires. There's a design in his death that he intends for us to imitate. For Jesus, the pathway to glory was through death, and it's the same for us. So look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life, Jesus says, will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this present world will keep it for eternal life. So in order to embrace Jesus and know the life that's in him, he's saying we have to die to a love of this life in this world. You have to hate your life in this world. What does that mean? Well, it means that you're going to live in such a way that you will deny yourself. And the world's going to look at the way you're living, how you take risks, how you say no to things that the world feels entitled to, how you embrace suffering, how you give away your money liberally, all for the sake of love. And the world's going to look at you and they're going to say, you're wasting your life. You're foolish. But a Christian knows, no, I have died with Christ. I have died to sin. I have died to this world. And this world no longer has the alluring power over me that it once had. Everyone who is a Christian has died. We have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The world has been crucified to us and we to the world. His death has become our death and his life has become our life. And Jesus goes on in verse 26 and says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. So where is Jesus going in the next few days? He's going to a brutal cross. 
He's saying, if you want to serve me, you got to follow me there. You've got to walk the Calvary road. You've got to lay your life down and die in order that you too will bear much fruit for me. Have you ever prayed that the Lord would make your life fruitful for his glory? I hope you have. It's a great prayer. Lord, make me fruitful. Jesus is reminding us here that there's a cost to being fruitful for him. Fruitfulness is costly. John Stott wrote, the greatest single secret of evangelistic or missionary effectiveness is the willingness to suffer and die. That's the greatest single secret. Translate that into your own family. If you want to see the gospel passed on to the next generation, to your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, your family needs to see something of the death of Jesus at work in you, death to self. If you want to reach your neighborhood here in New Buffalo, there's going to be some death involved. If you want to reach the nations of the world, there's a dying that needs to take place. The greatest single secret of evangelistic or missionary effectiveness is the willingness to suffer and die. Maybe it's a death to popularity or to pride or to prejudice or to material comfort. Stott says, a servant must suffer if he is to bring light to the nations and the seed must die if it is to multiply. That was true for Jesus. It's true for us. So let's examine ourselves. What in me needs to die in order that I may bear gospel fruit for God? Is God calling me to die to something so that I might see and show Christ more convincingly to others? Is there something I'm fighting to keep alive that God has sentenced to death when I became a Christian? And God's saying, it's got to die in your life now if you want to follow and be fruitful for me. We have to die. The death of Jesus is instructive for us. If people are going to see the life of Jesus through us, we've got to experience something of the death of Jesus in us. That's what Jesus is saying here. But look at the reward in verse 26. If we follow Christ all the way to the cross, we get to be where he is. Isn't that what you want? To be with Jesus? And he says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now that's a reward. There's going to come a time when all the earthly honors that you could possibly accumulate will mean nothing to you. But what will mean everything in the universe is to have the honor of the Father upon your life. Jesus says that reward belongs to those who follow him. So his death, he expects it to be productive and instructive. But thirdly, he expects his death to be effective. And to be effective, I mean, he expects it to have a specific result. He's aiming for a specific result in his death. And we're going to see what that is in a couple minutes in verses 27 through 30. Starting in verse 27, we get a glimpse of what this death is going to cost Jesus. He says, now is my soul troubled. And there's no trouble like soul trouble. Though he is fully God, we need to remember that Jesus is also truly and fully man, just like us. He's experiencing a flood of emotions 
that we would experience contemplating death on a cross only for him. It's worse because he's anticipating facing his father, not in the warm embrace of his everlasting love that he's enjoyed for all eternity, but instead facing his father in the terror of his fierce wrath for our sins. And for Jesus, that, that is a thought that brings extreme revulsion to his soul. He's facing agitation in his soul. But I want you to know this for certain. Jesus was not caught off guard by any of this. He was fully aware of what was about to happen. In fact, he was on the planning committee for this. There's an old poem called The Wicked Fairy at the Manger. You got to picture this scene, the baby Jesus in the manger. And there appears this wicked fairy. And she says this, my gift for the child, no wife, kids, home, no money, unemployable, friends, yes, but the wrong sort. Petty infringers of the law, persons with notifiable diseases, poll tax collectors, the bottom rung. His end, I think will make it public, prolonged, painful. And then in the poem, the spotlight moves to the manger and to the baby in the manger. And we read these words, right, said the baby, that was roughly what we had in mind. He planned this. He knew this. He's not caught off guard. There's agony, but there's purposefulness in coming to this hour. And he planned all this to have one supreme effect. Listen to the great yearning cry from the depths of his heart in verse 27. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. What's the purpose? Father, glorify your name. That's the one supreme effect. Jesus anticipates from his death on the cross. He wants his father's name to be glorified. And there are only three times in Jesus' life when the father's voice thunders from heaven. It happens at his baptism. It happens at his transfiguration. And it happens right here, just days before his crucifixion. Listen to what God says in verse 28. A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. And when is the father going to glorify his name again? It's when his son is hung on that wicked tree. He's going to say, son, your name is going to be glorified. And my name is going to be glorified through what you're going to accomplish on that cross. So don't ever think that Jesus was defeated on the cross, but then victorious in his resurrection. No. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ belong together. Jesus was effective in bringing glory to God through his death. And the resurrection is his father's loud affirmation that he was truly glorified by what his son accomplished on the cross. The son glorifies the father through his death and the father glorifies the son in his death. And as we hear words like that, we're probably thinking, how can that be? How can it be that this, this deepest degradation in our Savior's life, the cross, is also the source of his highest exaltation? How does that work? How can the death of Christ so effectively put on display the glorious splendor of both the Father and the Son? It's because through his death, Jesus is destroying 
all the adversaries of God. He's, he's putting all God's enemies underneath his feet and triumphing over them in his death. And that's the fourth thing Jesus expected from his death on the cross. He expected his death to be destructive. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So here he is going into battle and he is, he is certain that he is going to conquer this world that's against him and the ruler of this world who's the adversary of God. He expects his death to be destructive. The death of Jesus is destructive of sin because it reveals sin for the ugly evil it really is. We murdered the son of God. That's what sin drove us to. But in the very act of our worst sin possible, God was saving those who would believe in him from our sin. As we were pushing God farther away from us, God was drawing us closer to himself, reconciling us to himself through the death of his son, through the blood of Christ's cross. So the cross of Christ destroys any excuse that we might make for our rebellion against God. We might say, it wasn't really that bad. My sin isn't really that serious. All God has to do is say, look at the cross of my son. That's what was made necessary through your sin. It shows us the great evil of our sin. God brings judgment on the world and on sin through the death of his son, but he also brings judgment on the ruler of this world through his death. He destroys the dominion of Satan. As Jesus is enthroned on the cross, Satan thinks he's achieving his greatest victory ever, but Jesus is undercutting Satan in that very moment and he is dethroning Satan from his reign of terror. And listen to what John, 1 John 1, verse 3, verse 8 says. It says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. Paul puts it like this in Colossians 2, verse, verse 15. He says, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them by his cross. So Jesus expects his death to be destructive of the reign of sin and the reign of Satan. And it truly was both of those things. And then finally, Jesus expects his death to be attractive, to be attractive, magnetic in its attractiveness. Look at verses 32 and 33. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, he's speaking of the cross here, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I love these verses. This is the reason I picked these verses for your first Sunday of Mission Emphasis Month. Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, when I am hung on that cross, bleeding, I am going to be drawing all kinds of people to myself. Not every single individual in the world is going to be saved by Jesus' death on the cross, but he's going to save male and female, young and old, men and women from every tribe, tongue, and language, a multitude that the book of Revelation says is so great no one can number it. 
And they're going to be gathered before the throne of God and of the worthy lamb to worship him who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and all blessing. And that's what Jesus was thinking about in the days leading up to his death on the cross. He was thinking about people like you and me and people in Central Asia and all over the world who are going to be drawn to him through his magnetic love on the cross, through his obedience to the Father on the cross. His cross draws people like a divine magnet. Jesus sees people from all kinds of places, times, and seasons yielding themselves to him, wanting to come to him, just like those Greeks who came to Philip and Andrew and said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Jesus says, when I'm lifted up on that cross, people from all the world are gonna be saying, we wish to see Jesus. We are being drawn to Jesus through what he's done. Jesus didn't believe people were going to be able to listen to and see what he's done on the cross and remain unmoved by it. Jesus didn't believe that people would be able to remain neutral or stay at a distance when they heard of the nails that pierced his hand or the thorns that crowned his head and his death on the cross for sinners. He thought people would be so moved by the strength and the beauty and the power of his love and mercy that we would be irresistibly drawn to himself. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it. The only crime that ever could be laid to Jesus' charge was that he was found guilty of excessive love. Love beyond all reason. Love beyond all boundaries. Loving as none ever loved before. And Jesus was confident that after he died and rose again, this wondrous love that he put on display in the cross would prove itself to be so desirable, so attractive, that many all around the world would be drawn to himself. An early church father by the name of Athanasius said this, it is only on a cross that a man dies with his arms stretched out wide, as if to say, come to me. And Athanasius said, with one, with one hand, he was calling his old covenant people to himself. With another hand, he was calling all the nations, all the Gentiles, saying, come to me, come to me and live. And he's saying that to you and to me today. That's how he ends this passage. While you have the light, believe in the light. While I'm here among you, believe in me. Because if you reject me, all that's left is darkness. And if you're walking in the darkness, you don't know where you're going. Jesus is calling us to himself today through this passage, saying, look at my love for a sinful world. Realize that the Father sent me not to condemn you, but to save you. Come to me. Believe in me. He's calling all of us to himself today. But another effect that Jesus wants this passage to have on us is he wants it to increase our confidence in the power of the gospel, in the message of the gospel. He wants us to be very confident that this message is the best message for the world, that there's no other message like it. What he's done on the cross is going to affect nations and move people to come to him. So do you share Christ's confidence in the power of his cross do you really believe that we have the most attractive, most magnetic message in the universe to bring to people? Do you think that people in your own family, 
people in your neighborhood will be drawn to Jesus through the message of the cross. Jesus wants you to believe that people will be drawn. Do you believe in the power of the cross? When you were a kid, you probably played with magnets. I know I did. I had a horseshoe magnet, and I like to put metal things on a a blanket and just see all the different things that that magnet could pick up. And and here's the the beautiful thing. When, When a magnet picks up an object like a nail, it has the effect of magnetizing the nail so that whatever touches the magnet becomes magnetized by the magnet. And that's what has happened to us. We've been drawn in by the magnet of Christ's cross. We've been attracted through the magnet of Christ's cross. And by being drawn into the cross, we've become a magnetic field. And our lives exist now to draw others into Christ as well. And the way we do that is by lifting him up, by lifting high the cross, by speaking of what he has done. And when we do that, I am sure that there are people in New Buffalo, Michigan, who are going to be drawn into Jesus. And there are people in Central Asia who are going to be drawn into Jesus. So the effect this passage should have on us is to make us desire to lift high the cross of Jesus Christ as a church and as a people. May he be praised as we do so. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the message. If you'd like more information about Sawyer Highlands Church and Converge Community Church and the service times for both campuses, please visit our website at www.sawyerhighlands.org. Until next time, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.